Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. In December of 1972, the United States concluded the Apollo Lunar Program with the epic flight of Apollo 17. It was a spectacular flight from every conceivable point of view, with the only night launch of the mighty Saturn V rocket. We have ignition, two, one, zero, we have a liftoff which was recently followed up by the Artemis One night launch on November 15, 2022, which was also a spectacle as NASA has begun its return to the moon after a 50-year hiatus, with launch of the uncrewed Orion spacecraft atop the space launch system. Apollo 17 definitely had a crew, and we'll learn more about them on this program. Apollo 17 was commanded by Eugene Cernan, a veteran astronaut who flew on Gemini and the moon landing dress rehearsal mission that was Apollo 10 in May of 1969, getting to within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface. Sadly, the last man on the moon passed away in 2017, five years after delivering the eulogy for the first man on the moon at Neil Armstrong's funeral in 2012. Over the course of the next two episodes, we'll examine Apollo 17 through the lens of people who were intimately involved with it, from astronaut family members to scientists, and of course, our good friend retired NASA flight director Jerry Griffin, who was the lead flight director for Apollo 17, NASA's final Apollo moon mission. Now let's hear a bit about the Apollo 17 crew, Commander Gene Cernan, Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Jack Schmidt, and Command Module Pilot Ron Evans, from Apollo historian Andrew Chaikin and Apollo 17 Lead Flight Director Jerry Griffin. Ron Evans had been in Mission Control as a Capcom. Ron was just a delightful person. He left the planet at a, I'm afraid, a premature age. Um, I think he was in his 50s when he died. He was just, um, what you see is what you get, you know? So down to earth, so upbeat. He was really a positive person, very confident in his own abilities, but not an ego-driven person. Very enthusiastic and happy to do the best job on this last Apollo flight that he possibly could. He flew in combat. So, you know, I actually don't know the, the percentage of Apollo astronauts who flew in combat, but he's the only one who flew in Vietnam. Ron Evans, a command module pilot, we knew different than, differently than, than we did Jack. Well, Jack, of course, was unique among the Apollo astronauts for being the only professional scientist to go to the moon. Schmidt had been in, in mission control. He, of course, was a professional geologist Jack was a bachelor, and as a result, his apartment kind of often turned into the place where we could go after a simulation and have a couple of cool ones and talk some more about what we did that day. Jack was one of the guys who was especially close to the flight controllers. He spent a lot of time in mission control, a lot of time working with the flight controllers. Having a, a scientist who was also, by the way, trained as a pilot after he came to NASA, he was actually a qualified T-38 pilot, went through the Air Force training. So he was a complete astronaut, but he also had that PhD geology behind his name. Ron was very clear when we talked about it that going to the moon was an amazing experience, a great experience, but didn't change him. He was not going to tell himself that it was the greatest part of his life because he knew that that could be a trap. And Jack 
was even more adamant. He said to me, no, my life, I see my life as a steadily rising curve of experience with no drop off at the end. Okay, let's finish up with the commander, uh, the late, great Gene Cernan. Well, how do you even begin to put Gene Cernan down in words? I mean, he was so, um, in some ways, larger than life. He just came across as the ideal astronaut hero. He was just a good guy, and we knew, and by the way, they lived in the same neighborhood that, that I did, so our kids grew up together and all that. And there was a lot going on under the surface in Gene. I mean, he he felt a lot, and he gave voice to it. That was one of, one of the things about Gene that I really came to really like was the fact that he would he would talk about the emotions of going to the moon. Of course, we'd worked with Gene a lot. Gene was a veteran astronaut. Cernan, the commander, uh, had flown in in uh, Gemini, early Apollo, Apollo 10. He had had some of the most remarkable experiences of any astronaut, beginning with what he referred to later as the spacewalk from hell on Gemini 9 in 1966. On Apollo 10, which was the dress rehearsal for the Apollo 11 moon landing, and they went down to 50,000 feet above the moon, and that was an amazing ride. And you listen to the voice tapes on that, and you will hear Gene again giving voice to that excitement, that emotion. He was a good friend, easy to get along with, seldom lost his temper. He's kind of like me, if you ever lost it, watch out. <laughs> I don't lose it often, but when I did, I lost it pretty good. But he was uh, easy to work with. He was uh, very accessible. All three of these guys were, by the way, easy to uh, reach. If you needed to talk to him about a specific issue, that, that was true before the flight and then after the flight. I think they knew they had put a nice ending to a program that uh, really did make a difference in the world. It's just, a, it's just a very rich collection of personalities on that last flight. We'll hear more later from Jerry Griffin, as well as two of the Apollo scientists who worked closely on the mission with the Lunar Module pilot Jack Schmidt, Jim Head, and Jerry Schauber. We'll also visit with the wife of the late command module pilot, Ron Evans. Let's hear more now from Andy Chaikin about the historical context of Apollo 17, the last time humans visited the moon. Thank you so much, Dave. It's uh, bittersweet, but uh, great to be with you to mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17. Let's talk about uh, this mission as... Is it fair to say it was kind of the pinnacle of Apollo would be this mission? I think the three rover missions, 15, 16, and 17, were the pinnacle. They went to different places on the moon that had different secrets to share. But I think 17 was, they chose that landing site and planned that mission with a really a, a, a very you know, blinding appreciation of the fact that, hey, this is the last chance we get. And so they did pick a site that was more ambitious than just about any other place they went on the moon, just in terms of getting a safe landing. I mean, the the margin of error on Apollo 17 was a fraction of what it had been on Apollo 
11, certainly, and then Apollo 12, even with the pinpoint landing next to the surveyor. But the other thing they did was they picked a landing site that probably had a richer story to tell than any previous place visited by Apollo crews. The mountains, just as with Apollo 15 and Apollo 16, represented, and even Apollo 14, represented some of the oldest terrains you could go to on the near side of the moon, the oldest rocks uh, dating back to the titanic asteroid impacts that created the large basins hundreds of miles across in some cases that we see now today when we look up at the moon, if you look up at the, the full moon and you see the bright areas and the dark areas, well, the dark areas are all lava fields that lie within these gigantic impact basins. And the one that forms the man in the moon's left eye, the Sea of Serenity, was the target for Apollo 17. And the edge of the Sea of Serenity is a range of mountains called the Taurus Mountains. And the taurus Litro Valley is a dark floored plain set within the Taurus Mountains. So the mountains themselves date back to the serenity, the impact, the, the as the geologists call it, the serenitatis impact using the, the Latin name. And that impact is, you know, going back four something billion years ago or, or, or almost that, 3.8, 3.9. I'd, I'd have to go back and- I, th I think it's 3.8 billion years old, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're not just looking at what happened with that impact, you're exposing rocks that go back even further and Jack Schmidt pointed out to me that, you know, they called that rock from Apollo 15 the Genesis rock because it was the first really good hand, hand specimen, you know, fist-sized sample of the ancient lunar highlands, the, um, the rock called anorthosite um, that dates back, in the case of the Genesis rock, more than 4.5 billion years ago. Well, there was a rock that Jack found on on Apollo 17 that goes back even a little beyond that, even older. So you've got some of the oldest rocks collected in, in all the Apollo missions, and it was also hoped that they would find some of the youngest. Well, you know, that was a very good lure for the geologists who were trying to figure out where should we go on this last mission. Now, it turned out that that activity was quite old, going back about 3.6 billion years. That's the age of the orange soil, the famous orange soil that Jack discovered at Shorty Crater. It had been buried under lava and then a later impact only about uh, 17 million years ago, dredged it up and sprayed it across the surface. Um, and that's where Jack found it underneath a layer of, of gray soil with his boots, you know, and there's a great, it's one of the great moments of the entire mission where Jack says, wait a minute, there is orange soil. And of course, what follows is one of the great little episodes in the entire Apollo exploration. Thanks for joining us for part one of our look back at NASA's final Apollo lunar mission, Apollo 17, 50 years ago. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us.
And we're back with our retrospective on Apollo 17, the last time humans explored the moon 50 years ago. Up next, we talk to Jan Evans. Jan's the wife of the late Ron Evans, who was the pilot for Apollo 17's command module named America, which, along with his patriotism, led to his nickname of Captain America. Jan Evans, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. It's nice meeting you over the phone, Dave, and hope someday in person. Oh, me too. And the first thing I'd like to ask you about is, uh, I'm a romantic at heart, and and I can tell uh, from everything I know now about you two that you were deeply in love with each other. Can you tell me when you about when you first met Ron, and when you first knew that you you had a you had a thing for this guy? Well, uh, I think you probably know that we met through a mutual friend while he was home from flight training. And he was home on two weeks leave. And that first night, he came up to my friend's house, and I happened to be visiting her. They had gone through high school together. And we introduced, you know, introduced us. I was with him every night for the next two weeks while he was home on leave. And we just seemed to click. Well, uh, these these were the days when he was a naval aviator, right? And uh, and he he flew combat missions in Vietnam, and he's the only Apollo astronaut who did that. I mean, there were other uh, combat pilots who flew in Korea uh, from the original astronauts and and the, and the the older group, but he was the only one who flew in Vietnam. Do you remember the moment when he found out that he was going to be an astronaut? Oh my gosh. Yes, because the message came onto the ship. I love the picture of him. The ship's captain called whatever fellows were not flying missions at the time in the squadron together in the ready room. Ron had just gotten back, and he, of course, is dressed. And uh, is, there's all this perspiration under his arm still because he got out of the flight suit and put on his short sleeve to his uniform and reported, and he didn't know why, he just knew that they had been requested by the captain, and the captain read him the letter and uh, said that you have been selected as an astronaut. And bless that captain's heart, he told Ron to bingo to the beach and call your wife. And bingo to the beach means, however possible, get a flight to land and call. So he uh, fortunately got a ride to the mail plane to, I don't know if they went to Tumsonut or, or where, and Ron called me. And I remember him saying later that phone call cost him $76. Oh, goodness. That's a lot but back then. He was so excited, and of course I oh, was. Yeah. And then we weren't allowed to tell anybody. You couldn't tell family or anybody because NASA would be announcing it of the 4th of April. So I kept it a secret. And one of the really interesting things about his career as an astronaut that many people may not know is that he was in a CAFCOM for some very important moments of Apollo 11. Uh, for the liftoff from the moon? He was on the support crew for Apollo 11. Yeah. You know, you had the prime crew, the backup crew, and then the support crew. So that, you know, he got to do that soon after he got down there. You know, that, that was very exciting for him. 
And he served very well as a, a Capcom, the communicator, the astronaut that communicates right. directly with the crew. And I, you know, I know he impressed a lot of the the people at NASA: Deke Slayton, uh, Jerry Griffin, uh, and Al Shepard. So, can you recall when he actually found out? I believe you guys were on vacation that they had been selected. They were going to the moon. That's right. We were down in Las Brisas, Mexico. And that Barb and Jean and Tracy was with them, and Jamie and John were with Ron and me. And, uh, in fact, we each had our own little cabanas and everything else. The kids, too, they were really spoiled with ordering chocolate milk and all. And while we were there, the call came to Ron and Jean saying that they were going to be the crime crew for Apollo 17. So that was really exciting. And the children got into the, I, don't, I think it was Ron's briefcase, and they found all this notebook paper, you know, 8 by 11 or whatever it is. And they made signs out of that that said, congratulations, Cernan and Evans for Apollo 17 or something, and surprised us all with that after dinner. So the children were a part of the celebration of finding out. Well, speaking of kids, one of the things that I loved uh, talking to you previously is that uh, Ron was a very serious, very um, very mission-oriented pilot and astronaut and naval aviator, you know, all about business when he was at work. But when he was at home, <laughs> he was a fun guy. He was a really fun guy. Can you tell us a bit about, you know trips with the neighborhood kids that he used to do. Yes. He always would take the neighborhood children. He knew not to ring the doorbell before 9 o'clock on Saturday mornings. And if Ron did get back in town Friday night, then they knew he was there. And they would all be waiting outside the door for Ron to get the Suburban fired up and take him to the dump. And that doesn't sound the, like fun, but he made those trips to the, the you know, they, they went to the dump yeah. to go find fun treasures to bring oh, home. Yes. This is for little kids. That sounds like such fun. They all came home with treasures of some kind. One time it was a box of new baby kittens. Oh, goodness. That we, of course, had to find homes for. But all the children, you know, got to climb through everything. And then he also thought it was great sport to drive the, the suburban, you know, the four-wheel drive and drive through the fields. And what really would make it exciting would be to get stuck. Oh, wow. And everybody, you know, the kids, that was very exciting to them. One time they had to have the fire truck come pull them out because they were really down into the mud. So Captain yes, America he, was Captain Adventure for the neighborhood. <laughs> Right. Yes, that he was. Okay, well, let's fast forward to the mission. That was what the, the most spectacular launch of oh, any... sure. It was the first man night launch. Oh, it was just incredible. Tell us about what that was like for you. Oh, gosh. Well, as I say, it was the first night manned launch. Everything was different. Uh, we were viewed it from near a body of water. And when that fiery billow of smoke and fire first came out and the earth started vibrating, 
it woke up all the fish in the water and they were leaping in the water. Birds were flying around and it, it just, it could, you could see it a whole down the Florida coast. It turned in very orange daylight. Zero, we have a liftoff. And it is an emotion. You, I, I can't say, well, it's like such and such. Mm-hmm. Because it's unlike anything. You feel it in your body from, you know, the, the shock waves hitting you. Okay, baby, it's looking good. Here, roll this complete. We are pitching. And then I never saw a night launch like that, but to combine that spectacle on top of it all, it just must have been the most incredible experience. It was. And I, I had seen, oh, I can't remember I, if I saw eight or ten or what launches. Of course, this was at night. I said to one, I think it was Albina standing there, I said, why is that fire spitting out up there? And he said, that's venting. You don't see that in the daytime. And, oh, yeah. you know, I had a few questions like that. And yeah. because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was wonderful. It was a great family experience. It was just, you know, that's what it was. It was family. Yeah. And then, of course, the mission was such a spectacular success. And Ron, to this day, holds the record for the longest time any human being has orbited another world. He holds that record. Uh, his deep space walk was uh, on the way back to retrieve the film canisters from the uh, service module. Was uh, must have been an incredible experience. Did he say anything about what that was like to you to to be out there walking in the depths of deep space? Oh, he he just loved it. I I don't know if you've ever have seen a video of it or anything, but I mean he was having the time of his life. He did. He just, he Hot diggity so, dog. That's him. That's, That's what him. he said. Yeah. Hot diggity dog. <laughs> right. I love that. In fact, when we got back home after they arrived in Houston, the street was lined for miles with American flags, and the kids on horseback had flags. Kids had their tricycles and their bicycles decorated in red, white, and blue. And you get to the cul-de-sac, and there's one of these big electric signs that said hot diggity dog dum de dum and it was oh, you great. know just so wrong he just cracked up when he saw that yeah and i also love that they they dubbed him captain america america was the the name of the command module and challenger the lunar module but he got to be captain america and uh, i think he he really seemed to revel in that didn't he yes he did and 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 it, it was very appropriate really was. Well, so tragically, we lost your husband uh, at such a young age, uh, in 1990, right? Right. April. Yeah. And, and uh, the only thing that I can say is, uh, after all I've learned and from talking to you, is uh, he's a man who lived every minute fully. I, I will agree with that wholeheartedly, Dave. He sure did. There, there are some people who may live longer lives, but no better. And are you looking forward to the 50th anniversary commemorations? What are you going to in Houston? I certainly am. I'm looking forward to seeing the wives and the other fellas and squadron mates from the Navy and all the old neighbors from down there. And yes, our, our family has our reservations. We have our 
airline tickets already and just can't wait. And we, we celebrate, actually, the 22nd of December is uh, our wedding anniversary. And the flight, you know, was the 6th through the 19th. And uh, so we'll be down there during the flight time. And 50 years is a long time. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, and now it's been 32 years since Ron died. Thank you so much for sharing your memories of your late husband with us and the flight of Apollo 17 and for keeping his memory alive because he really was uh, was such a great American and and what a great astronaut. Uh, fitting that, you know, the last flight of the Apollo program, that he was the command module pilot. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you down in Houston. Thanks so much to Jan Evans, wife of the late Apollo 17 astronaut Ron Evans. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us as we continue part one of our look back at NASA's final Apollo lunar mission 50 years ago. And we're back, and thanks for joining us on this special look back at Apollo 17, the last time astronauts flew to and walked on the moon in December of 1972. Our next guests are two scientists that worked closely with the Apollo 17 astronauts. Jim Head is a planetary scientist from Brown University, and he's joined by his Apollo-era colleague, Jerry Schauber, who was a member of the United States Geological Survey's astrogeology branch at Flagstaff, Arizona. The Flagstaff branch was founded by the late Eugene Shoemaker, and he was a mentor for Apollo 17 astronaut and geologist Jack Schmidt. Jim Head and Jerry Schauber, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Well, we're, of course, talking about Apollo 17. But uh, just to back up a little teeny bit, uh, Jerry, you being at uh, Flagstaff is something I would like to explore just a little bit. Can you talk a bit about how that got established as an astrogeology branch and how it dovetailed into the Apollo program? Yes, um... actually, the, the, the magic word is Gene Shoemaker in that respect. Uh, Gene Shoemaker was fascinated by the moon, and when he, I think he he graduated from Caltech and got his master's, I think at nineteen, <laughs> and he was fascinated with going to the moon himself. Actually, he wanted to be the first man on the moon, but he talked NASA into the survey into forming an astrogeology branch, and then in '63 or '4 they moved to Flagstaff. And I came in 65, and we, we've been here ever since. In fact, we're still training astronauts to this day. They were just, the Artemis astronauts were just here for a long period of time over at uh, Sunset Crater and so forth, just this last few weeks. So oh, wow. we're, still in, we're still in the business. Very cool. And and Jim, can you tell me a bit about, you know, what was your role uh and your affiliation with the Apollo program, because you are deeply involved too. Right. It, uh, so I answered an ad for uh, geological scientists, uh, and the ad was just simply a picture of the moon, and it said, our job is to think our way to the moon and back. And I thought, oh, my God, how could I not 
answered <laughs> that ad. And uh, so there's a phone number down in the corner and I called it, it was NASA headquarters. And we were the systems engineering branch of NASA headquarters and the systems engineering branch of Apollo. So, you know, what was systems engineering? I'd never had a course in engineering. I didn't even know what systems engineering was, but it was simply thinking your way to the moon and back. So my role was working for the Apollo program office at NASA headquarters, Rocco Patron. Uh, and we um, basically uh, did whatever we needed to do. It was really amazing. And that's how I got uh, associated with Gene Shoemaker and Jerry Schauber and all the geologists, because we were designing the traverses, taking the astronauts in the field, and uh, basically teaching you know flight jockeys uh, geology and uh, throughout Apollo from Apollo seven to seventeen, um, that was my job. Okay, let's talk about um, since Gene didn't get to go to the moon, Gene Shoemaker, one of his students basically did, and he was on Apollo seventeen. Talk a bit about uh, Harrison Jack Schmidt, J Jerry. Could you tell tell us the story about how Jack found out he was selected for Apollo seventeen? Jim Head and I were rooming down in Houston. We were sharing, it was on August 12th of 1971, it was. There was rumors going around that there were maybe a shift in the flight, flight crew for Apollo 17 uh, on the TV news, but because the geologists around the country, including Lee Silver and Gene Shoemaker and others, were really lobbying very hard for Jack to take that slot because they had canceled Apollo 18 and 19, which Jack, I probably would have been on one of those flights, but they canceled it. So one of us said, let's call Jack. He was, his apartment was just down the road from where our motel was. So we called him. We went over there. We went over there, yeah. And we opened the door and he was, against his desk window in the back of the room studying a cardboard mock-up of the lunar module panel, control panel, just in case, right? And so we then we heard the news that it was announced that Jack was going to be going to the moon. So he said, it's not true until I hear from Deke Slayton. And Jack had not heard from Deke Slayton yet. So here we were in Jack, in Jack's apartment. Jim had taken over a few bottles, these little bottles of whiskey and stuff you get on the airplanes in those days. So just in case there was a good news. So we're waiting and waiting. And he gets a phone call. Jack does. And we thought, here it is. And he said, I can't talk now. I'm waiting for a phone call. And he hung up. And we said, who was that? And he said, it was my sister. So we wait a bit longer. We're sitting there reading magazines and saying nothing. And eventually he gets another phone call. And this time we knew who it was because uh, he said, yes, sir. No, sir. I'll do my best, sir. Thank you, sir. And he hung up. And without saying a word, he went over to the bar and picked up. And, he did, and Jack wasn't a drinker. He never really drank that we knew of. He opened three of the bottles, I think, that Jim had put down there and opened them up and drank them, put them in his mouth and drank them all down at one time. And then there was silence again. And so we said, did you, I think Jim said, would, would you like to, go? we said, would you like to go down to the Pizza Hut, which is not too far from there. And again, we, we ordered pizza and, and a pitcher of beer and there was nothing sound coming from from jack 
we sit there for quite a long time, a very uncomfortable period of time, and basically in silence, just like it was in his room. We didn't find out until later that probably the reason that he was not saying anything was because Deke Slayton, on the phone call, had asked Jack to call Joe Engel and tell him that he was not going to the moon. That was really, well, because Joe Engel was one of the most popular astronauts down there at the time. So that was probably very likely the reason that Jack was so solemn and quiet. Uh, just a couple of general things. Uh, so um, uh, Jack Schmidt was really uh, essential uh, to the training of the astronauts, as well as being an astronaut himself. He um, was the one that early on brought Lee Silver of Caltech into the program to help with astronaut training and uh, and to help with the US Geological Survey training and all our traverse planning and things like that. And Jack played a, a huge role in that. And Lee Silver, who passed away recently, sadly, uh, was just unbelievable in that and worked with the PIs uh, of the field geology experiment, which were the Flagstaff folks and all of us. Let's talk about the, the Apollo 17 site and what they found there. Can, can you give us some of the highlights of what, what they discovered and what they brought back and what it's taught us about the moon? Because they really did land in a spectacular place, Taurus Litro, in that box canyon, essentially. Could you talk about, like, what are the big takeaways that we got from Apollo 17? Well, so there were there were several fundamental objectives. There were three basic landing sites that were in competition for Apollo 17 site selection. So uh, Apollo 17 was really exciting because the one site, Taurus Litro, had in fact ancient mountains from an impact basin, Serenitatis Basin, that predated Imbrium, which is where Apollo 15 and Apollo 14 had visited. So we wanted to go to older basins. In addition, it had what was called a dark mantle. It was like a dark deposit that was mantling over the surrounding terrain, the lowlands and the uplands. It looked very young. In fact, it had very few craters on it. So it looked like it might have been very recent volcanism. And so that was another exciting part of it. Could it be the youngest volcanism and some of the oldest rocks for this basin that predated the Embryon Basin? And then there were other really important things like the flat, smooth plains and also a landslide deposit that, that nobody understood uh, that was at the base of the two mountains. So getting inside that what you call Box Canyon <laughs> was really an important thing. And the landing ellipse, which is an oval-shaped thing uh, that has downrange and cross-range errors that you need to be able to fit inside your landing area. And the Apollo 17 early discussions about the landing site, the ellipse would not fit into this valley. It was too big. Uh, so that was a really negative thing. A lot of the engineers, oh, it's a Box Canyon. We don't want to go in there. And uh, one of the guys in flight crew operation directorate that we talked to a lot about the importance of the science at Apollo 17 site, the Taurus Litro site, said, okay, look, I know that the ellipse doesn't fit in to the valley, but I know also that each of you engineers has a pad, which means a 10% extra added on for the uncertainties. I want you all to go back tonight, scrub your pads, which means get a better estimate on them, come back in the morning, and that ellipse is going to fit in the Taurus Litro Valley. Sure enough, the next morning at nine o'clock, huh, yeah, but that'll work. We're going, okay? And so Apollo 17 site, Taurus Litro Valley was chosen. They landed very safely in the middle of the valley. 
And indeed, uh, we didn't think much more prior to the site selection about the other two sites, which were Alphonsus and Gassendi Crater. Uh, let's talk about Shorty Crater and the the famous orange soil discovery. Could you, Jim? Could you, you know, c- condense that for us and talk about how exciting was that when he made that discovery and what it actually meant in the long run? So, uh, Shorty Crater was really, uh, really important, and uh, we had seen a, a, a dark crater on the white material on the surface from orbit, even. And so that was definitely put into the traverses. And when uh, Gene and and Jack got there, um, I can remember the words being in mission control. I can remember the words, oh, hey. Jack, there's orange soil. It's Where orange. It's orange. And, you know, Jack's, wait, wait, let me see. Let me see. It's there right is orange soil. Well, don't move it till I see it. It's all over. Orange. Wait, let me put my visor up. It's still orange. Now, back in Mission Control, we thought orange soil, that's like, you know, fumaroles, which are gases coming out of the surface that color the uh, surface with sulfur and and other uh, elements, because we thought it's active volcanism. We come to see volcanism that was geologically young, but it could be going on today. We were really, really excited, and they did a superb job of analyzing it. And the irony is that when they came back and the material was dated, it was 3.7 billion years old. The orange part of it was related to, uh, they were, it was essentially a volcanic eruption like you see in Hawaii where the, the fire fountain, where all this ash gets thrown out and falls back down on the ground. And it actually happened 3.7 billion years ago. So that was a fundamental discovery. And Jack and Gene did a superb job of sampling, and we're still analyzing these data today. Uh, it showed that, in fact, this dark mantling deposit, in contrast to being young, was really old. And that that revolutionized our thinking. We said, oh, it's the moon is really old, and all these things we thought might be young are really old as well. So that was a really fundamental discovery, and Jack and Gene just did a superb job. I had to work quickly. One of the things about uh, if you watch those EVAs and you were involved in this, you know, it is a constant race against the clock. You know, you've got uh, basically the, the mission control people, Jim, Jim Lovell, you know, relaying. It's like you've got to move on soon constantly. So to, to be able to act, actually sample that and get all that information as quickly as they did is pretty amazing. It is. And, you know, I think uh, a a key element in this, too, uh, was the capsule communicator. In the case, for the most of the EVAs, it was, in fact, Bob Parker, who was was an astronaut. And uh, he would go on all the field trips and participate in all the briefings. You know, we would would, uh, go to the Cape in the weeks before uh, they launched to the moon. They would live at the Cape for a a month or so. And we would go to the Cape and brief them in the evening. We typically would have dinner with them in crew quarters. And then after dinner, we'd have extended uh, discussions and briefings. So he could very much transfer our wishes, if you will, or inputs to the astronauts, as well as those of the flight directors, et cetera, uh, up to the astronauts. And it worked, worked beautifully. The chatter between Bob Parker and Jack Schmidt, you know, there's a lot of banter going on there that's, you know, kind of dry humor. Um, and at times, you know, Jack would break into song, you know. I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December, May, May, when much to my surprise, a 
He also comments at times, and people, I don't think people realize how physically difficult the work was, you know, over those many hours on the moon that, you know, it, it actually, like he even says at times, it, you know, it hurts. Like, see, this is, this is really hard to do. Yeah, the, the, it, it's sort of like when you look at the spacesuits, it's like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, you know, basically, it's, you're inflated. And of course, when that happens, if the suit doesn't fit well, then you know it compresses your fingers or when you have to grip something you're working against the suit etc so yeah it's one of the things we did in preparing the astronauts before they were on the moon and uh, we looked at their metabolic rates i knew all the metabolic rates of all the astronauts because we had to see how much energy they were going to use and how much oxygen they were going to consume uh, so we would know how far they could get away from the lunar module because bottom line was they couldn't get away more than about seven kilometers because they needed to be able to walk back if the rover failed at that distance. And the walk back was dictated by uh, essentially their metabolic rate, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, last couple of things is, let's comment on the rover and how that enabled them over three days and those those EVAs, those those basically those, those moonwalks, those explorations, uh, that they were able to cover a lot of territory. Absolutely. Um, they, the lunar rover, which flew on Apollo 15, 16, and 17, was an incredible example of the science and engineering synergism that characterized Apollo. And on Apollo 17, in fact, they were able to go 4.7 miles, okay, about seven and a half kilometers. And uh, uh, that was incredible. That was really incredible. And they brought back more rocks on Apollo 17. Huh, geologists on the mission, more rocks. That computes. 254 pounds of rocks, okay, the most of any Apollo mission. As you look back 50 years ago on this flight and the Apollo program in general, what are some of your your biggest takeaways from you, for you personally, to have been involved in this and, and what we've learned about the moon from those missions 50 years ago? Uh, let's start, start with you, Jerry. Well, it was amazing being part of it. The thing that we're probably most proud of in our training, and we did a lot of it here in Flagstaff, is that they got to really, really enjoy the geology that we were teaching them. And the traverse maps, which of course were made, designed here and produced here in Flagstaff, they were quite important in their training too, because they were in part of the planning for the traverse plan and where we were going to take him. We would brief them several times before the mission with their Travers plan, and so they would make changes in it, or they'd, they'd say, we'd like to see this or that. And we had cuff checklist, which the astronauts all had on their uh, cuff checklist. So I, it was just an amazing, successful program. And right now, going back to the present, we just had the Artemis crew astronauts here in Flagstaff for like the second or third time, they're out there right now doing training here, right where they did during the Apollo days. Wow. And Jim, what about you? What do you give us your take on the scientific legacy of Apollo 50 years later from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think the Apollo program to me was uh, absolutely incredible because as a personal experience, you were part of the team at all levels. Uh, you know, I remember seeing Apollo 13, the movie, and I've seen hundreds of 
poopy space movies. And it, that's what it's like to be there, basically, the closest thing I've seen. And I went a couple of weeks later, I saw Jack Schmidt. I said, Jack, what'd you think? This is Apollo 13. Wasn't that great? He said, Jim, there was just one problem with the movie. I said, what was that? He said, didn't you notice that everybody in Mission Control was too old as actors? Uh -huh. Don't you remember that we were all, that the average age was under 30? And, you know, it's like, would you turn the uh, Artemis program over to 20-somethings? Well, <laughs> you might want to do that. Well, Jim Head and Jerry Schauber, thanks so much for joining us to share with us your memories of Apollo 17 and the Apollo program. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Finally, let's turn once again to our good friend, retired Apollo flight director, Jerry Griffin, for his perspective on Apollo 17, a mission that he was named lead flight director for. The lead flight director role was primarily a pre-mission role. Uh, we always designated a lead flight director to work with the astronauts, uh, all of the engineering people, and to make sure then that we went through the flight plan, the mission rules, emergency procedures, maybe if they were particularly for that flight, if there was some new system that we uh, had on board and that we needed to know how to handle it if it went south on us. And so it was actually a role of just put, making sure all the pieces were pulled together and ready to go for that mission. Once the mission was launched, uh, the flight director, the lead flight director, just became another flight director, except with that pre-mission knowledge of working more closely with the crew on an almost day-to-day -day basis and the engineering people and all of that. And you took a lot of inputs, not only from the people that you saw on TV, and but we also had uh, people in the back rooms. We had contractors back at their factories. We had the engineering people at, at not only the Johnson Space Center, but every other space center in NASA that had facilities and people that might help us, they were kind of on a standby. So it wasn't like the flight director was doing this by himself. But at the end of the day, the responsibility fell to you to make the final go-no-go no go on any uh, phase of the mission. The buck stopped on your console. That's right. Let's talk about something fun and switch gears for a little bit, because we've never discussed this before, but I think it's one of the most, I don't know, whimsical, wonderful parts of spaceflight. And that is the tradition of wake-up music. And I was wondering if you could comment a bit on the wake-up music that was chosen for the Apollo 17 astronauts. Well, you're right. Uh, that was always the flight director on duty's choice. and. Um, on their wake up, their first wake up, I think it was the first wake up call that we gave them on the moon. I was going to do the, I was on duty to do the, the uh, lunar excursion that day. And, uh, and the devil made me do it, but I played the, <laughs> I played the Aggie war hymn, which is, I'm a graduate of Texas A&M university and the war hymn is uh, any other school would call that their fight song. We call it our war hymn. Are you going to sing it for us, Jerry? No, I'm not going to sing it. For oh, okay. You. Uh, it was really funny. We played it and there was this silence and all of a sudden yeah, you could tell he was sleepy. Cernan came on and uh, I can't remember the words exactly. It's in the, tra the official transcript, but he said, well, I've been awakened to a lot of things, but never a bunch of Aggies. 
but anyway, he great guy, great guy, and and we had fun, and those kind of things went on. You know, I like to tell those kind of stories because it it brings out two points. I think one you know, about Apollo, we're often kind of seen as the uh, we never made a mistake. You know, we were almost perfect, and of course, people like you know that's not true, but. We made mistakes. We weren't perfect because we were human. And the human side of the program, I think, is the part that is some of the most interesting. And if you listen to the voice tapes, you'll hear the Capcom and the and the crew in all many times in kind of a banner. And 17, we'd like to have you guys drive in in 10 minutes, please. I always called our communications disciplined conversation. Uh, it wasn't stiff. It wasn't the old over and out uh, World War II kind of radio discipline. It was, it was disciplined conversation. And it was easy then to slip from something very technical to something kind of funny. Jack Schmidt having a few problems. Dad, coming. And be advised that the switchboard here at MSC has been lit up by calls from the Houston Ballet Foundation requesting your services for next season. I should hope so. We hope it was worth the effort. Oh, it's all worth the effort. Yeah, so we were going to the moon and doing this thing that was very hard to do, but it had this human side to it. And, and I think that was part of part of the success of the program to show that you could do things like this and not lose uh, not lose that thanks again to all of our guests Andrew Chaikin author of what I consider the finest book about the Apollo program a man on the moon Apollo 17 lead flight director Jerry Griffin Jan Evans and Apollo scientists Jim Head and Jerry Schauber be sure to listen in next week for the conclusion of our Apollo 17 special when we'll hear from the late commander Gene Cernan's daughter Tracy Cernan Woolley plus more from Andy Chaikin and Jerry Griffin along with Holly Ridings the first woman to be a NASA chief flight director who is now an integral part of the Artemis program which hopes to return astronauts to the moon. Blue Dot's Apollo at 50 series is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schloem, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Hey, Houston, uh, it looks like uh, mescalonite, or at least blue-gray uh, plagiarism. It's uh, fairly coarsely crystalline.